In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, there is an allusion here to the ancient games where a multitude of spectators occupied the seats in an amphitheater uh, from which they could easily watch the participants take part in a race or some event, whatever it might have been. Now, in like manner, the apostle, he represents Christians as encompassed with a whole multitude of worthies, looking on to witness the efforts which Christians make and the manner in which they live. Now, Albert Barnes, he made this comment, it cannot be inferred from this, that all those ancient worthies were actually looking at the conduct of Christians and saw their conflicts. It is a figurative representation and means that we ought to act as if they were in sight and cheered us on. It's really a picture that is given to us to encourage us to press on in our labors for the Lord. The thought of the sight of such eminent godly men and women in the crowd, it ought to inspire us, it ought to encourage us and give us hope knowing that their God is our God and what the Lord did through them and for them, He is still able to do for us today, for He changeth not. Now, this morning I want to pick, as it were, a worthy out of the crowd and focus on Him. We have just finished our series on in the Bible class on Bibliology, and before I start on all our series, whatever it might be, I want to do something different this morning, a one-off biographical study. The Reverend Greer, a few weeks ago, he preached from Ezra 7, a message entitled, The Right Man at the Right Time. And God always has His men through history, holy vessels anointed with power and used in the most extraordinary manner. And we're going to consider such a man this morning. J.C. Ryle said, There are some men in the pages of history whose greatness no person of common sense thinks of disputing. They tower above the herd of mankind like the pyramids, the Parthenon, and the Colosseum, among other buildings. Now, this is true in different spheres of life, political, scientific, sports, music, arts, whatever it might be, but also among preachers. And the man we're going to think about this morning was one of the principal champions of the great evangelical awakening of the 18th century, which swept through England, Scotland, Wales, parts of Ireland, Holland, Germany, France, and the other side of the Atlantic through the New England colonies of North America. Now, the nature and extent of that revival was probably second only to the Reformation since the days of the Apostles. That awakening it commenced in the 1730s and into the 40s, and it really continued virtually unabated for 50 years. It touched the life of all classes of men, women, and children, rich and poor, religious, irreligious. It, it changed the tide of English history, and it deeply influenced the religious and moral conditions of the day. Multitudes were turned from their godless and corrupt ways, and few historians would deny that the Great Awakening of the 18th century, it saved England from almost certain bloodshed and civil war. And how we long for another such breath from heaven. Now, the man we're going to look at this morning is George Whitfield, God's man for the hour. A little biographical sketch of this man. And the first thing I want to do is consider the backdrop 
of the land, the backdrop of the land at the time in which Whitfield lived. We're prone to think that the times, uh, times have never been as dark and as difficult and sin has never been as rampant as it is in our day. Now, this is not to downplay or deny the awful state of our nation and the Scripture. It does state that evil men will wax worse and worse. But by highlighting the state of the people in those times, it reminds us that none are too hard for God, that desperate times are God's speciality, that the light of the gospel, it always dispels the darkness, and that when our God moves, there is nothing, there is no one who can stand in His way. Now, it's been said that in the early 1700s, the life of England was foul with moral corruption and crippled by spiritual decay. As far as the ecclesiastical landscape was concerned, almost without exception, the churches of the establishment, they were dead, they were formal. From many pulpits, a sermon could hardly be heard from one month to the next. And if a sermon was heard, well, it was little more than a, a moral essay. The vast majority of the clergy, they were worldly. They gave themselves to hunting, to farming, to shooting. They swore, they drank, they gambled. As for the bishops, well, they were also men of the world. It was said of Archbishop Cornwallis, he gave so many social parties and balls at Lambeth Palace that even the king had to write to him and request that he stopped and conduct himself in a manner that is more in keeping with his office. Of the 10,000 clergy in the Church of England, only a handful struggled to maintain the truth that was once delivered unto the saints. The chapels of the dissenters, we might say those who stood outside the camp of the apostasy, well, those chapels, those churches were for the most part deserted. And you can already draw parallels to our own day and generation. It was also said that the majority of the people, they had no more concern for true religion than they had for their cattle. The spirit of materialism had gripped their hearts. The great truth for which Latimer and Ridley had went to the stake 200 years before and for which others were martyred and went to prison for, they were largely forgotten. Infidelity and skepticism, well, that was the order of the day. Men and women had generally rejected any belief in the Scripture. And therefore, they suppressed any serious thoughts about God, of holiness, of righteousness, of judgment, of a need for personal salvation. The whole nation was on the slide. One man, he made this comment, the spirit of slumber was over the land. And isn't that the type of day we live in? People are so apathetic. They're so dull of hearing uh, the things of God. They are asleep upon the lap of the wicked one. Now, coupled with this open disregard for Christianity, there was also widespread abhorrence of anything that looked like religious enthusiasm. It was believed that the skirmishes, the wars, those small wars of the 17th century, the century preceding, well, they had been stirred up by religious zealots. And it was taken for granted that anyone who preached or prayed with any degree of earnestness must of necessity be a danger to the peace of the nation. Now, he isn't a street preacher. The sounder forth of truth isn't he viewed as the one who disturbs the peace. And aren't they trying to pass laws which suppress any religious fervor concerning 
the things of God. Bishop Riley made this remark concerning that period in which Whitfield lived, dueling. You know what dueling is? That's men with guns, and they walk back to back, and they turn around, and they shot each other. Well, dueling, and adultery, and fornication, gambling, swearing, Sabbath-breaking, and drunkenness were hardly regarded as vice at all. They were fashionable practices of the people in the highest ranks of society, and no one was thought the worse for indulging in them. Now, back in 1689, the importation of alcohol was prohibited. But the Englishmen, well, to get around that, they began to brew their own alcohol. And so much so that within a generation, it was said that every sixth house in London was a gin shop. And the nation, it was gripped by drunkenness. There was also a considerable increase in number of poor people in the land. And listen to this as a result of long rejection of moral standards, as well as indulgence, larger and larger numbers became unable or unwilling to work. Lawlessness, violence, and crime were rampant. Add to that the inhumane treatment of the sick and the insane, the widespread cruelty to children, the obscenity of the theater and the corruption of the press. Well, it paints a picture that we're all too familiar with. Now, it'd be hard to imagine a day and an age less conducive to the spread of the gospel, nor a population less receptive to hearing it, but quite suddenly England was startled by the voice of a young preacher, and his name was George Whitfield, God's man for the hour. Now, that leads us on to consider, secondly, the background of the man. There's the state of the nation. And as I said, I'm not downplaying or denying our own state. And the Scripture says evil men will wax worse and worse. But that's the scene upon which George Whitfield stepped. And the Lord placed him. George Whitfield was born on the 27th of December, 1714, in the city of Gloucester at Bell Inn in Southgate Street. He was the youngest of seven children of Thomas and Elizabeth Whitfield, his parents, they owned and they, uh, they, owned and they ran the, the inn or the public house in which he was born. His father died when Whitfield was two years of age. And when he was four, he contracted measles and it left him with a severe squint and his left eye turning inwards. Eight years after her bereavement, Mrs. Whitfield, she remarried, but that marriage was not happy. And after a few years, her husband left. From the age of 12, George Whitfield, he attended Crypt Grammar School, and there he developed a great passion for acting, and he loved nothing more than reading and performing plays. At 15, he started to work in the, the, the inn in which he was born, but after a number of years, he became a servitor. And what's that? Well, that's really a, a servant to wealthier students, and in that way, he was able to go to Oxford and pay for his own education. As a youth, Whitfield was no more or less religious than others of his day. He was a, what you might call a good Anglican. He went to church, but he knew nothing of the teaching of the Bible. It simply wasn't taught. In his mid-teens, he went to church with his friends to mock what happened there. But before he went to Oxford, he began to become more serious about religious matters. Now, Whitfield, he entered Oxford College in 1732. 
And it was while he was there he first met John and Charles Wesley at what was called the Holy Club. Now, that was a small band of men, and they were dubbed Methodists because of their strict and methodical, self-disciplined way of life. They thought uh, that this was the way to et- obtain eternal life, and they, they really kept themselves under uh, their bodies under check. And they tried to, as it were, earn salvation by the works that they performed. Whitfield said of this group, never did persons strive more earnestly to enter into the straight gate. Now, after about a year, Charles Wesley lent him some books. Most significantly, Henry Scogel's The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Now, that book completely undermined Whitfield's belief. Every duty that he had been doing up until that point, well, he saw it was without value. But he resolved to do everything he could to become a new creature with more fervor. It did him no good. He felt the load of his sin pressing him down and and nothing could take it away. He he went to extremes. His health was shattered. He almost killed himself with fasting. And his tutor in the university had become concerned for his welfare. But Whitfield's search for the truth had intensified as he sought with all his heart to find peace and assurance. All else became secondary to this one all-consuming necessity to be right with God. It was not until the spring of 1735 that light burst in upon him. He threw himself on his bed, and out of desperation, he cried out to God, I thirst, I thirst. And that was the first time that he, that he looked outside of himself for help, that he looked to God. Now, immediately he said that his load was lifted, and he found himself full of joy, and he commented, the spirit of mourning was taken from me, and I knew what it was to truly rejoice in God, my Savior. He had become a new creature in Christ, and that was the great turning point in his life. Now, very soon, Whitfield began to entertain thoughts of becoming an ordained minister, but he thought of himself that he was unsuited. Now, his friends, they urged him to do this, but he resisted for some time. But it was in the next year, 1736, at the age of 22, and that was unusual because usually the Church of England didn't ordain until men were 23. But at the age of 22, because of his character, because of his testimony, he was ordained to the Church of England. A week later, Whitfield, he preached his first sermon, and some complained that 15 people were driven mad. Now, what was meant by that? Well, what was meant is those 15 people came under such conviction of their sin that they were always, almost put out of their mind. But they were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. The anointing was truly upon God's man. And so began a ministry in which it was estimated that almost 18,000 sermons were preached. That is the background of the man. But thirdly, this morning... I want us to consider the blessing of his ministry. The blessing of his ministry, because it just grew from then. Within a month of commencing to preach in London, crowds began to flock to hear the boy parson, as he was known. He was undoubtedly a curiosity because of his age, but at the same time, few could deny his extraordinary gifts as a preacher 
and the unquestionable power that God had placed upon him. People were stunned by the simplicity and the clarity of his sermons and by the earnestness with which he pressed upon them their hopeless state and their need for salvation through Christ alone. From the very start of his ministry, there was no build-up in George Whitfield's ministry. From the very start, he obtained a degree of popularity among the people such as no preacher before or since has probably ever reached. It was very evident that God's hand was upon this chosen vessel. Whether weekdays or Sundays, wherever he preached, uh, the buildings, the churches were crowded, and the congregations were shaken by the Spirit of God. Now, by this time, the Wesleys, they had gone to Georgia. I actually thought the Wesleys were not converted at this point. They weren't converted, I believe, to five years later. But the Wesleys had gone to Georgia in North America to the new colonies. And from there they wrote to Whitfield urging him to join them in the work. Their accounts of the people there, though these men weren't converted at the time, but their accounts fired up Whitfield's soul and he longed to cross the Atlantic to preach the gospel of Christ. But after continuing preaching in England for the remainder of 1737, he did finally plan to set sail for Georgia the following year. And that was to be the first of 13 such crossings during his lifetime. Now, on the day that Whitfield was to set out from England, John Wesley actually arrived back the very same day, and their ships met in Deal Harbor. The things had not gone well in Georgia for John Wesley. And he immediately wrote to Whitfield, and he urged Whitfield not to sail. Now, he did this. He wrote to Wesley, or to Whitfield. He did this as a result of, of casting a lot to determine if Whitfield was to stay or to go. The, the lot had bid Whitfield to return to London. But Whitfield, he ignored the so-called divine guidance from Wesley. He didn't lean upon the lot he leant upon the leading of the Lord. And he set sail for Georgia as God had planned. And how thankful America was that he did, and that he didn't turn back. Now, Whitfield stayed in Georgia for a year, knowing great times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And then he returned to England. Now, on his arrival back to, on English soil, it was accompanied with great excitement. He recommenced his preaching, and his journal records this. I quote, Here seems to be a great outpouring of the Spirit. And many who were awakened by my preaching a year ago are now growing strong men in Christ. However, Whitfield, he soon discovered that his position was not uh, what it was previously. The bulk of clergy were no longer favorable to him, and they regarded with him with suspicion, thinking he was only a fanatic. They especially disapproved of his preaching of regeneration, of the necessity of being born again. And as a result, the doors to the pulpits of the Church of England began to close to George Whitfield. In February 1739, when he was forbidden to preach in any of the churches in Bristol, he took the momentous step of preaching to the miners 
in the open air at Kingswood. He records of that momentous day, having no righteousness of their own to renounce. They were glad to hear of a Jesus who was a friend to publicans and came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The first discovery of them being affected was the sight of the white gutters made by their tears, which plentifully ran down their black cheeks as they came out of their coal pits. Hundreds of them were soon brought under deep conviction, which, as the events proved, happily ended in a sound and thorough conversion. Whitfield's rejection by the vast majority of the Church of England clergy had forced them it forced them into the open air. And back in London, excluded from most pulpits, Whitfield, he was determined to claim two open spaces, two sites where he would preach the gospel of Christ. One was called Murfields, and the other was, was Kennington. And at Kennington, that's where the criminals were executed on the gallows. Now, amazing scenes followed during the years in which Whitfield preached at those two locations. I want to give you a couple of entries from his diary in 1739 when he was 24 years of age. Sunday, April the 29th, preached at Kennington Common, about two miles from London, where no less than 30,000 people were supposed to be present. The wind being for me carried the voice to the extremest part of the audience. All stood attentive. I hope a good inroads was made into the devil's kingdom today. Sunday, May the 6th, preached this morning at Murfields to about 20,000 people who were quiet and attentive and much affected. At 6, preached at Kennington, such a sight I never saw before. I believe there was no less than 50,000 people taking his diary entries. It is reckoned that in a space of a month, George Whitfield preached in the open air to over 650,000 people. That's an average of 22,000 a day. That is what God is able to do. That's the thirst that God can give to people for the Word of God. That's something we need to pray for. We see there is absolutely no thirst. We go to the open air, and you don't get the people stopping and standing. They walk on past. We need to pray that God will give the people a thirst, that Lord God would give His servants an anointing, that people will come to hear the word of the living God. While great crowds were drawn to hear Him, Whitfield's preaching was also met with constant opposition and the threat of danger. The secular press will they never cease to characterize Whitfield, both his words and they also did it in their cartoons that they drew about him. He was the constant brunt of scorn, and they, they never let up in their ridicule of his preaching, his methods, and his doctrines. Yet in spite of all this, George Whitfield took the gospel to the people of England as no man had taken it before. Fashionable sitter, sinners in their glittering drawing rooms of the aristocracy, well, they, they heard him and they trembled. And the other end of the social scale, the criminals whose ends would have been the gallows of Kennington. Well, they looked to Christ and they lived. The impact of the message of Christ was so powerful that whole sections of society were changed. In some towns and some villages, 
Well, virtually the entire population was converted. The standards of morality on a national scale changed and were immensely raised. The influence of Christian morality and ethics had permeated all levels of society. Politicians were changed. New laws were enacted. People began to think with a new perspective, with a new set of values. There are accounts of pubs and theaters closing because of lack of custom. Often selfishness and, and greed and crime and immorality and all these other open vices, they, they diminished dramatically. Instead, Christ's kingdom was earnestly desired and the name of Christ was held in high esteem. Of this revival, one historian commented, it changed in a few years the whole temper of English society. Does that not whet your thirst for something like that again? How pervasive this revival, this great awakening was. It wasn't just a religious stirring and a, and a religious, as it were, shaking up. This went into, as it says, all levels of society. I could go into accounts about, uh, about schooling and education and hus, uh, hospitals and healthcare and all the rest of it. It went into every realm and sector of society. And surely this is what we need, even though it's not what we deserve. So finally this morning, I want us to think about the Bible and what fields preaching. We thought about the backdrop, the background, the blessing, and now the Bible and what fields preaching. Whitfield, he had an immovable commitment to the Bible, a strict discipline from his days in the Holy Club. Well, it took on an entirely new complexion when he was converted to Jesus Christ. The Scripture immediately became his necessary food and the fuel which fired his soul. Whitfield recalled, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees. And that's a habit he maintained for most of his life. He studied the English version with the Greek, and he consulted Matthew Henry's great commentary, which was only recently published. After reading the text, well, Whitfield, he prayed over every line and every word in both English and Greek, and he feasted his mind and his heart upon, upon its truths until it became an essential part of his very being. He devoured the words and the truths of Scripture like a feast spread before him, before his hungry soul. And the Word of God became so all-consuming in Whitfield's daily life that he confessed to having little time to read anything else. He said, I got more true knowledge from reading the book of God in one month than I could ever have acquired from all the writings of men. He was deeply troubled by those who viewed uh, Scripture as an antiquated book and as irrelevant to the times in which they lived. In that day, there was many, uh, well, evangelicals. They spent considerable time reading secular philosophies, rhetoric, and, and logic. But Whitfield, he devoured divine revelation. He resolved that nothing would displace the preeminence of Scripture in his life. His private acquaintance with the Word of God was, was most clearly seen in his scriptural vocabulary and his preaching. He readily used biblical metaphors and drew biblical analogies and illustrated biblical truths with other biblical passages. Cross-references in Scripture, well, they freely flowed from his lips. The man was filled with Holy Scripture. And that leads us on to consider the preaching of God's man. 
Now, J.C. Ryle highlighted seven features of his preaching, and I'm going to just summarize them for you. This man of God was a preacher. He was a preacher. Number one, he preached with a singularly pure gospel. The man had one focus. Ryle said, few men ever gave their readers so much wheat and so little chaff. Whitfield had soaked himself in Scripture, and he knew vast sections of the Word of God off by heart. But he also had a firm grasp of the great doctrines of Scripture. He made no apology for his Calvinism, and he spoke constantly of the righteousness of Christ, of justification by faith, and of the fundamental necessity of the new birth. Number two, his preaching was simple. It was said that no one could ever misunderstand what Whitfield was saying. Whether it was believed or not, well, that was another matter. His hearers were left in no doubt as to what he was saying to them. Simple biblical statements, apt illustrations, and pertinent anecdotes. Well, they were the common weapons that Whitfield used as he preached. And the result was that his hearers, they always understood him. He never shot above their heads. His preaching was bold and direct. Many of his hearers, well, they thought that his sermons were intended specifically for them. He preached right to the conscience. And would often say, I am come here to speak to you about your soul. It was this direct approach that often left his hearers stunned and, and gave them the profound sense that God had spoken directly to them. There is a story of a man who went to one of these great outdoor meetings just to witness the spectacle of the crowds that had come to hear George Whitfield preach. But he was determined not to actually listen to anything that the great preacher was saying, and so he put a finger in each one of his ears. Now, at that time, well, the Lord sent the bee to land on that man's nose. And in the instant that he took his fingers out of his ears to swat away that bee, Whitfield thundered out the words, Unknowingly, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And that man's attention was arrested on the spot, and he listened intently to the remainder of the message and went home converted to Jesus Christ. His preaching was bold and direct. Number four, he had a remarkable power of description. Whitfield seemed to have that gift to turn men's ears into eyes. To turn their ears into eyes. So much so that he's able to dramatize a, a subject so powerfully that his hearers felt that they were actually witnessing the real thing. There's the well-known story of Lord Chesterfield, who was listening to Whitfield preach on one occasion as he was describing the plight of an aged blind beggar deserted by his dog. This poor man was stumbling towards a precipice, and Whitfield, well, he portrayed the imminent disaster as a blind man groped forward, and just as he was about to take the fateful step and plunge over the edge to his death, Lord Chesterfield, he actually made a rush forward to save him, and he cried out, he's gone, he's gone. The noble man had been so carried away by the power of Whitfield's description. He preached with tremendous earnestness. 
All his energy was poured into his preaching. He used all his abilities to make others believe. No one ever slept when he preached. There was a holy violence about him, and he never let his hearers alone. There is another account to, to illustrate this of an American who went to hear Whitfield out of curiosity. Now, the beginning of the sermon was rather heavy, and the man at the front, well, he dozed off. Suddenly, Whitfield stopped, and his, count, uh, his countenance changed. He said this, If I had come to speak to you in my own name, you might well rest your elbows upon your knees, and your head in your hands and sleep, and once in a while look up and say, What is this babbler talking of? But I have not come to you in my own name. No, I have come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts. And at that point, he brought his hand and his foot down with such force that it's reported that the building shook. And he cried, I must and I will be heard. The congregation, well, they were startled. And the man woke up at once I cried Whitfield, fixing his eye on him. I have woken you up, have I? I meant to do it. And the hearers were stripped of their apathy, and every word of the sermon was heard after that. His preaching, number six, was filled with immense feeling. It was said of Whitfield that it was not uncommon for him to weep his way through a sermon. The great preacher felt so intensely for those whom he was speaking to that he found an outlet for it in his tears. Whitfield's tears awakened the consciences of hardened men that no amount of reasoning would have done. It moved the, or it smoothed the prejudice with which many had come to hear him. So much so that his hearers found it hard to hate the man who wept so much for their soul. Number seven, he spoke with extraordinary clarity, power, and grace. His voice was so powerful that a crowd of 30,000 could hear him with ease. That's without amplification. But his voice was said to be so musical and well-toned that even the pronunciation of simple words could bring tears to his hearers. Every movement of his body communicated the truth as he spoke his manner in the pulpit was said to be so graceful and fascinating that no one could hear him for more than five minutes without forgetting that he squinted. As I conclude, it almost goes without saying that he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a godly man who lived close to his Lord. Therefore, his power his power lay not in his talents nor in his oratory gifts, but really in his piety. He was charged with the power of God because what he spoke came out of a living experience and relationship with the living God. God had his man for the hour. Whitfield was a tremendous soul winner. And that's what we need in our day and generation. We need and we long for a soul winner. I know it's my own desire that we'd be fishers of men. You see, when hearts are changed, homes are changed. When homes are changed, neighborhoods are changed. And when neighborhoods are changed, society is changed. And we need a change in society. 
reading and hearing these accounts of George Whitfield and these great periods of church history not only stir and warm our hearts, quicken and challenge our love and devotion to the Lord, but surely any consideration of such a worthy among the great cloud of witnesses that watch us as we run the race, it ought to cause a cry to rise up within us, do it again, Lord. Do it again. In thy wrath, remember mercy. God's man, he died at 56 years of age, spent for God. He was God's man for the hour. May the Lord bless this brief biographical study even to your heart this morning. As I said, I want to do something different, something just to whet the appetite, stir up the desire in our souls that the Lord would come again and know that when He moves, nothing, no one, no condition, state of the land can prevent Him, can stop Him, and can hold Him back. Let's unite together in prayer and ask the Lord to bless us even this morning. Eternal God and gracious and loving Father, we bow before Thee and we marvel, O God, we marvel at what You did through the man like George Whitfield. And Thou art the same God. He was but the vessel. And Lord, we long for it. We read here about the backdrop, the condition, the state of the land in which Whitfield lived and Surely, Lord, it was like reading an account of our own day and generation. Yet, Lord, we thank Thee that You moved then. We thank Thee, Lord, that the light of the gospel dispelled the darkness. Lord, we mourn, we lament the state of our land. And yet, Lord, we lift our eyes heavenward. Our hope is in Thee. We pray, O God, that Thou would come, that Thou would even Lay thy hand upon a choice vessel. Been hearing it on Sunday morning. We think of Ezra, O God. And we pray, O Father, that thou would come. We, we look, O God, to thee. Look, O God, for a mighty soul winner. One anointed with the Spirit of God. Lord, we pray that thou would give a people a thirst for the things of God. O God, we lament, we lamorn the apathy of our day and generation so dull of hearing, asleep, being rocked and lulled to sleep in the lap of the wicked one, with all that is around him, with all the false ideologies of this day, and all the human philosophies, and all the entertainment, and all that would clamor and grasp for people's attention. And there they are upon the lap of the wicked one, fast asleep in their sin, not knowing that they're heading out into a Christless eternity. O oh God, of mercy upon them. Bring glory to Jesus Christ. Save the lost. May we know times of refreshing from the presence of our God. Breathe upon us. Once again, O oh Heavenly Father, come with mighty revival power. May we know what it is to experience days of heaven upon earth. Come, we beseech of thee. Bless in the morning meeting. Remember the words spoken unto our children, our young people. Lord, may it be mixed with faith that it might profit them. Do them good. And maybe, Lord, even from among our young, our young people, our children, that thou would lay thy hand upon them. They would be choice servants 
raised up to serve thee in this their day and generation. Hear us, Lord, and do us good. For this I ask in the Savior's precious and lovely name. Amen.